Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hello and welcome to the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 65, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today I'm joined by Kip Adams, Director of Conservation for the Quality Deer Management Association, and we're covering 2018 Whitetail Report. So stay tuned. All right, we are live. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. Hope everyone is having a good Good Wednesday, hump day, you're almost there, the weekend's almost here, deer work is in full swing, this time of year, Velvet Fest has kicked off, um, hopefully everyone's finding some time to get out into the timber and put some, get some cameras in the woods and, and get ready for the uh, for the season. I had a weekend full this past weekend of uh, of all kinds of cool hunting and related stuff, man. I went to I went to TAC this, this past weekend in uh, Seven Springs, Pennsylvania and shot with some buddies, Tim Bunau from new york uh the bow hunting fiend was there but he and i we we crossed paths he wasn't able to make it there on saturday the rain held off on saturday fortunately we did get to uh shoot a weather free to a degree and man that's a tough course uh i lost a few arrows uh didn't come back with all the all the arrows that i took but it was a fun course nonetheless got to hang out with my buddy Bo, um and recorded a podcast with him that'll be coming out soon i'll let you guys know when, when that happens uh, he's got a he's got a, a a new thing that he's doing called East Meets West. It's really kind of all about adventure hunting and stuff like that. And so that was super uh, super cool to kind of hang out with him. And it's just a good time, man. It's just a bunch of hunters and you know hanging out, shooting bows, and talking deer hunting, man. It's just everyone's kind of you know you can kind of tell that the everyone's mind has kind of now shifted now that turkey seed is 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 over, and um, you know everyone's kind of focusing in fully on on whitetail season and. Uh, and with good reason, it was just kind of a nice sign in being there and getting to talk to everyone, trading deer stories. You could tell everyone was just kind of getting pumped up for the season. So I did get to do then on Sunday a little bit of deer work. I got to head to the uh, the newest property, my dad's property, and go pull some cards. I know it's early to pull cards. I know that the uh, the deer aren't sporting a ton of a ton of bone at this point in term in terms of velvet, but I couldn't help myself. I was I was nearby. Um, was passing through on my way to tax. So I figured I would stop in and, and pull the cards. They'd been, they'd been sitting out all year for the most part and, uh, hadn't checked anything since I think the March 26th, maybe, or March 25th. 
So they've been sitting for a while, just kind of curious, you know, I'm still kind of learning this property and understanding how the deer are using it at different times of the year. And, um, so did that today or, uh, on Sunday rather. And, uh, Got to got to play in the rain pretty much for the entire day because it was uh, it was a soaker. So you know, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, did have a cool encounter with a little buck that was kind of fun. Um, you know, it was super rainy, and uh, of course, I'm I'm sure he probably couldn't hear me because there was a a drainage that I was walking up and water was rushing down it, and the water of course from the rain was hitting the leaves. And I'm sure you know his scent, you know uh, his his ability to smell at that point probably wasn't great with the amount of moisture that was in the air and on the ground. And I was able to kind of creep up on him to probably 15 yards and just kind of watched him for a little while for probably five minutes, just watched him be a deer, man. And it was it was one of those things that that really, you know, I was already kind of geeked up and ready for the season. Um, and uh, if, if if I wasn't beforehand, I was after that because that was just kind of a really cool uh, way to kick off Velvet Fest for me was to kind of creep up on that little buck and and watch him just be a deer and then think about, you know, hopping into a tree stand and how soon that'll, you know, time will fly by and we'll be back into a tree stand and I'll be watching that with a bow in my hand and I'm just you know already <laughs> super pumped about it so you know that was kind of my weekend you know it was all full of deer work and, and, and good things uh you know back into the the grind of the week um you know and I won't belabor the the point here on, on the upfront we have a an awesome podcast today it's a guy that I've wanted to have on for a little while uh Kip Adams from Quality Deer Management Association uh Kip's a guy I've listened to for a while on a, on a, on a bunch of different in terms of different writings that he's done, different videos and, and, and other podcasts that he's been on. And I've always wanted to have him on. Um, and full transparency, this this podcast was recorded just a few weeks ago because um, Kip and I's uh, calendars happened to sync up at that time. And I wanted to take advantage of his his free time to get him on the show. So some of the stuff we talk about in terms of turkey hunt and stuff like that, you'll notice is, is, is a little bit delayed. Uh, in terms of recency, uh, but the content that we cover, I think, is really important. We cover you know everything from the status of CWD and, and the things that are going on in that regard, and, and we talk a lot about you know a little bit about um, you know hunting heritage and what's going on as as we continue to think about hunter recruitment and things of that nature. And then, of course, we dive into some of the specifics as far as some of the um, uh, some of the information in the uh, 2018 Whitetail Report as far as the statistics go in terms of you know, things that are kind of eye popping to him that kind of stuck out as they were doing the analysis. Uh, so w- with that, let's take a quick second to talk about our partners that help us make this podcast possible. We are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code truth at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. We are also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The new Exodus Trek is a byproduct of all the consumer voices who have been excited about what Exodus has to offer, but just can't fit a $200 in their $200 camera in their budget. And that's okay. A budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here. The Exodus Trek comes in at $145. It has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift. Uh, series cameras and has the same five-year warranty and unmatched customer service policies, 0.7 second trigger speed, photo video, photo video time lapse, and hybrid modes that we've all come to love, all with a single, simple, single line backlit LED display. And you get approximately 20,000 images on a set of lithium batteries. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus Trail cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself $20 on a new cam. We're also brought to you by Tecumani Seed. Everything is bigger in Texas. 
No matter if you're in the South, Midwest, or the Northeast, Tecamani Seed has your food plot needs covered. Visit Tecamani.com and check out their product selector tool to help you pick the right seeds for your food plot needs. Use promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20%. And we are also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20%. And with that, let's go ahead and get Kip on the line. All right, we are live. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have a special guest, the guy I've been looking forward to having on for uh, quite some time. I'm also proud to say that he is a, uh, a fellow Keystoner. Um, he hails from, uh, from I believe, Knoxville, uh, Pennsylvania, the area of Knoxville, PA, and uh, is, is also works with the uh, QDMA in, in, a, uh, in a, a very large capacity. I'm sure a lot of you folks out there that are big into deer hunting and, and just understanding deer habitat, deer biology, know who I'm speaking of. I'm speaking of the one and the only Kip Adams. How you doing, my man? I'm doing good, Clint. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, I know that you are, you're not a, I guess people aren't unfamiliar with you in the, in the world of, of, of deer hunting and so forth. You know, you've, you've, you've done a lot of the circuits of podcasts and stuff like that. That's kind of where I got turned on to you. And then of course found out that you were also from Pennsylvania, which made me even that much more excited. Uh, hoping you're, hoping you're a Steeler fan. Is that, is, is that affirmative? Actually, you know what, uh, being from Northern Pennsylvania, I'm a long way from Pittsburgh, uh, I actually grew up a Miami Dolphins fan. Well, you are like the second person that I've talked to that's from that neck of the woods. There's a fellow by the name of Mike Perry, a big time, you know, public land hunter that I've become friends with that lives, I think, around where you live. And he is also a Miami Dolphins fan. Is that like the Dan Marino era? Is that what swayed you? The Don Shula, like late 70s and then the Dan Marino draft? Yeah, actually, I'm a bit older than that. Uh, I can, um, I'm not all that far from Syracuse. Okay. And, uh, and my dad was always an Orangeman fan. So when Larry Zonka graduated from Syracuse and uh, got drafted by the Dolphins, um, my dad became a Dolphin fan. So uh, my brother and I grew up. Uh, the only football team we knew was was the Miami Dolphins. So uh, I've been I've been a Dolphin fan for a long time. All right. Well, we won't we won't hold that against you too much. I and guess. you know, I've got to be a serious Dolphin fan to admit that I'm a Dolphin <laughs> fan. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, we've all, we've all had some lean years and I'm sure the, uh, the Steelers lean years after, after Ben retires are going to be right around the corner. So we'll, uh, we'll get the full effect of that. But, you know, speaking of your, your background a little bit there, you just kind of gave us a little bit of, you know, background about, you know, where your family's from and, uh, and how you became a Dolphins fan. But if you wouldn't mind for those out there that are listening, that maybe aren't as familiar with, uh, with you as I am, uh, just give us a little bit of background about yourself, what you do, uh, how you started hunting and, you know, of course what you do professionally. I grew up in uh, north central Pennsylvania, actually on a dairy farm, so I have just been around uh, the woods my entire life, and uh, I was very lucky. I grew up in a hunting family. My dad hunted. My uh, uh, paternal uh, grandmother hunted. Um, my uncles hunted. My uh, maternal grandfather hunted. My friends hunted. Everybody I knew hunted. It was just the most natural thing in the world uh, for me to hunt, and uh, and I understand that's certainly a lot different for, for folks today, but... Uh, that's kind of a, what I grew up into, and um, at a very early age, I decided that, you know what, I want to be a wildlife biologist uh, when I grow up. So uh, I went to, went to Penn State. I got my undergraduate degree at Penn State, uh, left there, I went to the University of New Hampshire to get my graduate degree, and uh, from there, actually got a job for this, working for the state of Florida. Oh, man, I had never been to the southern U.S. Wow. And, uh, um, certainly, you know, I didn't want to go to Florida. Um, I wanted to stay in the north, but... Uh, uh, that's what, the only job that I had, so I went, 
and it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to uh, an aspiring deer biologist, you know, to get out of the north, to see, you know, a different uh, culture of deer hunter, um, to learn, you know, see deer in a different habitat, did me a, a world of good. So I uh, worked for the state of Florida for four years. I went back to New Hampshire and uh, was New Hampshire Fishing Games deer and bear biologist. So I ran their deer and bear programs for a couple of years, and uh, it was during that time that I learned about QDMA. Uh, QDMA had sent uh, um, an announcement for some educational materials to every state's uh, deer project leader. So uh, I got it, um, read a little bit about QDMA, became a member immediately, and thought, this is great, I need to be a part of this. And then lo and behold, uh, just a little bit after that, uh, QDMA advertised the very first position working for them in the Northeast, and uh, I applied and got it, and uh, that was that was just about 16 years ago now. So, that uh, I've seen a lot of changes at QDMA over the years, but it has been a great ride, and uh, I'm uh, I've been very fortunate to to get to work at the different places that I have, Clint. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's awesome that someone you know, with, it's interesting you had that you know that that passion or that kind of foresight, knowing exactly kind of what you wanted to do at a at a young age, and kind of followed it through, and it led you back home. And I don't know that you could have found a better uh, a better fit for you, you know what I mean? In terms of, you know, where you're from and, um, you know, how much of a hunting culture, especially specifically a deer hunting culture that Pennsylvania has, or a heritage might be a better way to put it, you know, and, and kind of place you in the perfect uh, environment to kind of help, you know, be a steward for that, you know, not just for Pennsylvania, but, but nationally as well. Um, I do want to take a quick second, you know, and just talk a little bit about QDMA. And I know we're going to dive into some of the, uh, some of the, uh, the whitetail report from, from this past year. Uh, that you all put out, but I want to just talk a little bit about some of the initiatives you guys kind of have going on and just kind of get a little bit of an update. I know I've talked to, you know, had Lindsay on and that was a great conversation, had Ryan on, just kind of give me, I guess, a little bit of a status update of how you guys are doing in terms of, you know, your initiatives initiatives and mission uh, for this year. I know you guys kind of set some new five-year goals here this past year when you were in New Orleans. We did, and, uh, and I am super excited about those, uh, mostly because they really uh, all speak specifically to what our mission is, you know, with regard to, you know, providing money for, for research and, uh, and helping, you know, on-the-ground management projects, um, venison donation, you know, mentoring hunters, those kind of things that it just really hits home for, for where I think we need to be today as a hunting culture. So uh, I'm super proud of what our, our goals are. Um, we, uh, we are doing well, um, certainly within the, the ones that we can measure thus far in 2018. Um, Many of them will have a much better handle on here in a, in a couple months. Um, our um, membership survey is about to go out, so it'll go out uh, in May, uh, and that uh, provides a lot of the data for us, such as you know the, the pounds of, of venison that our members donate a year, the acres that our members are involved in, in QDM cooperatives with, the number of hunters that they mentored last year, those type of things we get from that survey. So. A lot of uh, a lot of the metrics that we have to measure where we are, um, we're going to be getting in the coming month. So it's an exciting time for us. Nice, yeah, I know. It's uh, <clears throat> I was I was excited to see you know the the goals you guys had put out, and I know that in terms of recruitment, you guys have some really great lofty goals. It, it sounds like, and whenever I was talking to Ryan and, and and Lindsay, it sounds like we're we're tracking in a good space to uh, to to meet those. You know, and I've. You know, I can speak for me personally. It it, it definitely inspired me um, to the point of you know making sure that not only am I 
you know, taking my daughter out as I always do every year from, from that perspective and introducing the youth. But it's, you know, one of those things that I've, I've been harping on. And I'm sure people are probably tired of hearing me talk about it because it's a little bit of my soapbox, but it's really the adult recruitment aspect of it. Um, you know, and I'm happy to say it's like, I'm introducing my first adult this year. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, I think we as hunters, we, we, we were of course, you know, concerned with, you know, the, you know, the outdoors and, and, and conservation and want to make sure we're doing as much as we can. And we, and we talk about it and, and we're passionate about it, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I took the, uh, the look in the mirror as I, you know, as you know, I hope um, you know, a lot of folks do and just had to ask myself the tough question of whether or not I felt like I was doing enough. Could I do more? And was I doing everything that I could do within my means? You know, and I had to answer that honestly. And the answer was no, you know, and like there was this gap that I felt that I could fill and do more, which was taking an adult hunter, you know, or adult out and introducing them to hunting. So I'm doing that this turkey season. He's super stoked. He's pumped up to go. Um, and uh, I can't wait to get him out in the woods because not only is he excited, but it's I get to kind of experience all those firsts again with him, which is a really cool thing. So. You still there? Yeah, I got you, Clinta. You cut out on me. Oh, I'm sorry. I did. <laughs> I'm sorry you about. You were talking that. too long, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, your your voice trailed off. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I was just mentioning how excited I am to take my first adult out uh, hunting this hunting this year to do some uh, adult hunter recruitment. So I was, I'm really excited to uh, to make that one of my goals for this year and accomplish that. So and following along with the, the goals you guys have set. So. Um, Good. Uh, we actually, our, our uh, senior director of operations challenged uh, all the TDMA staff to do that as well, you know, to take somebody like that. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of pizzazz, I guess, of taking a youth hunter. Um, but man, there is so much more bang for our buck if, you know, if we can take an adult hunter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I, we can need to continue taking those youth for sure. But uh, kudos to you for taking an adult. Uh, that, that will make an immediate impact on a number of hunters. And uh, that's a big deal. Yeah, he's pretty excited about it. I, I can already see it in him that uh, I don't think this will be his uh, first and only hunt. I think he's uh, he's already kind of getting the bug, and he hasn't even heard a turkey gobble yet. So that's a, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> a good deal. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you uh, before we jump into some of this report talk, man. Uh, how was your how was your past season? I follow you, of course, on on Instagram and and so forth. And I think you had some kiddos out that this year that had some uh, had some good luck too. Oh my gosh, I had I have been hunting for a long time and. And I joke with my wife and tell you know every year. Gosh, I think I enjoyed it more this year than last year. And uh, I am I am certainly a very passionate hunter, and, and just get all tore up with it. But I will say I can honestly say 2017 may have been uh, my best year ever, in in large part because of what other people shot uh, when while I had them with me. Um, right. My young daughter shot her her first deer. Uh, on opening day of archery season, so uh, our whole season was just going to be great because of that. Um, she then shot uh, her first buck on the opening day of Pennsylvania's rifle season, which was pretty cool. Um, I ended up shooting a few deer with my uh, even younger son sitting with me uh, for all of them. Um, it turned out uh, I actually shot a, a nice buck on our place nice. um, that I thought was four and a half when I shot him, and uh, the it turned out the uh, with some animal analysis that uh, he was actually five and a half, which wow. made it even a little bit cooler. Yeah. So, but uh, maybe even more, I think, interesting than that is uh, my my son was with me uh, during archery season, and uh, and I shot a doe that when I looked at the jawbone, I saw clearly, ooh, this this was probably the oldest deer I've ever shot, hmm. and uh, I was there was I knew there was a good chance that it, it may even hit ten and a half years old. Uh, we sent that in Sizer way as well, and it came back that she was 13 and a half years old. Wow. Yeah, I remember, so, uh, I remember I seeing was, that post. 
super, super proud. So, but um, it made it that much better that my my little boy was with me. So, uh, but uh, there were some other great hunts that we had with my brother and with my nephews and, and some others that I that I mentored. So, uh, overall, uh, boy, 2017 was just absolutely outstanding for me. I was very, very lucky for sure. Nice man, that's an awesome season. Do you now? Do you get a chance to get out and? hit some other states or do you primarily hunt Pennsylvania? I primarily hunt Pennsylvania. Um, I, I try to hunt one other state each year. Um, I'm lucky. I actually get asked, uh, by QDMA members usually to, to hunt in quite a few other states. And, um, and I don't, I, I, I politely decline in almost every case. And the reason being, I travel so much for work during the year right. that uh, when the fall comes, um, I just really want to be home and, uh, and take my kids hunting. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the largest part. And also, uh, you know, uh, we have, we're lucky to have property, you know, we, we manage this heavily, you know, a lot of habitat work. And so, uh, I would much rather shoot a deer, you know, here that, that, you know, because of our management, um, you know, than, than something that's even much larger somewhere else. Uh, right. Really not I like shooting a, you know, a big buck. I love shooting big deer, but, uh, it means more to me, you know, if I am home with that. So, uh, so I do most of my hunting here. I typically get away for uh, at least one other hunt uh, each year. And, uh, and actually, last year I ended up making away. I went to Colorado, and nice. then and also did a little bit of hunting in Kentucky. So uh, it was a it was a really good year that way for me. But nice. 95 percent of my hunting Clint, is, is in Pennsylvania and is right here at home by, with my kids sitting with me. Man, that's you can't beat that, man. I can't fault I can't fault you there. Um, I definitely enjoy whenever I get a chance to get my my kiddo out in the woods, and she's already been asking me about going and doing some deer hunting. She shoots a compound, and uh, she's getting pretty proficient with it. So hopefully, it's just a around the corner. I think this year will be the first year I take her and put her in a tree stand with me while I do a hunt. Because so, she's been uh, asking. Good deal. Yeah, good deal. you're have a blast. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. But going to change gears here real quick, man. And I want to get to, you know, some of the stuff that we, that, you know, I had a chance to read and, and, and peruse in the, in the whitetail report, you know, the 2018 whitetail report and kind of touch on a couple of the topics that are in that for anyone out there listening that hasn't picked this up or isn't aware of it. You know, I highly recommend you pick it up for any deer hunter that's into understanding what's going on with the deer herd, not just in your state, but at large, it's a great resource. Um, you know, I usually, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a, a extremely difficult read, but it's a very informative read. And I usually kind of break it up on train rides and stuff like that and read it over the course of the year, it seems like, but I want to cu- touch on a to- couple topics before we get to specifics. I want to just get a sense from you as you were putting the report together, you know, what were some of the high level trends that you noticed and, you know, and if there's two or three that kind of stuck out to you, what do you think they mean for hunters and management agencies overall? I think a couple of the big things are one, uh, the buck harvest, annual buck harvest, after a pretty big decline for, for about a decade. The last two seasons has greatly rebounded. So uh, we are shooting a lot more bucks uh, now than we were just a few years ago, which, uh, which is a good thing. You know, we have really taken a hit on the buck harvest side. So trending up, buck harvest is good. Um, antlerless harvest continued to trend way down. And actually, in the last decade, um, our doe harvest is down 20% uh, hmm. over the country. That is a huge drop. Um, some of that is by design. Some states have, have, you know, balanced deer herds with the habitat, so they're actually um, reducing some antlerless harvest opportunity. But, uh, but in many cases, you know, there are some, some really productive states where the agencies are begging hunters to kill more uh, does that uh, the hunters just aren't taking advantage of. Hmm. And uh, 
it's, it's very possible, and I really hope this is not the case, Clint, but it's really possible that the season we just finished, mm-hmm. uh, for the first time since 1998, we may have killed more antler bucks than we did antlerless deer. Wow. Uh, you know, 1999 was a landmark year in, in deer uh, history of deer management because it's the first time we ever shot more antlerless deer than uh, than antlered bucks. And uh, then from 99, you know, through uh, the next you know, 15 years or whatever, we uh, killed a lot more does than we did bucks. But uh, the last few years, that's been getting closer and closer together. And uh, hmm. there's this past year, there's a real good chance that it actually swapped. So as hunters, so. Uh, there's, there's a lot of does we're leaving on the table that, uh, that we could put in our freezers or, uh, or, or give to somebody else to put in their freezer. And uh, we, we are shooting does at a lower rate right now than we have in a long, long time. What does, you know, I know just from like a, <clears throat> you know, a, a property level perspective, you know, or I, I won't even say that it's accurate, but a lot of guys will say, you know, wanting to make sure that they're harvesting does to try to keep their, their, their sex ratios and balance. Of course, you want to look at just your overall numbers in terms of under, you know, and understanding what your carrying capacity is for your property and stuff like that. So not just the, I guess the, the, the more localized view, notwithstanding, what does the, the lower or the lower doe harvest numbers really kind of mean for, you know, deer management and what's the implication from like a habitat perspective and deer herd, I guess, health perspective. Well, if the deer herd is, is below what the habitat can support, mm-hmm. um, you know, lower doe harvest uh, isn't all that big of a deal because you're not uh, hurting anything. However, when as soon as that deer herd, you know, there's as many deer as the habitat can really support to keep them in a high-quality condition, um, then if it gets above that, low doe harvest hurt health of the deer because basically you're, you're nutritionally restricting those deer. So they're not as healthy as they could be. They're not as big as they could be. Bucks aren't growing as big of antlers as they could. They aren't being as good of mothers to the fawns as they could, which is none of that is good for us or for deer. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, too, uh, then they start negatively impacting the habitat, which means in the future it can't carry as many deer. And it's also not as good for other wildlife species. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, as hunters, we have, a, we have a great responsibility to make sure that we shoot, you know, the, the right numbers of deer each year. And, uh, you know, in some cases we shoot probably more than we should, and in some cases we shoot fewer. And, uh, boy, for the last five or six uh, deer seasons, uh, we have shot way fewer does than we probably need to. Uh, not everywhere, certainly, but in many places. Uh, there's a lot of the productive Midwest uh, where we're shooting a lot more bucks than we are does each year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just simply should not happen. Right. Now, what about, you know, just going to be selfish here for a minute, but what about Pennsylvania? How are we looking in terms of uh, PA, since I'm a PA guy? Pennsylvania is good. Uh, Pennsylvania, we continue to harvest way more antlerless deer than we do antlered bucks. Uh, that's a good thing. And, uh, and you know, yeah, as hunters, you, we think of, all right, you know, we want to have balanced adult sex ratios. And uh, think about that. You take whatever state you're in, about half of the fawns born are going to be buck fawns, and about half will be doe fawns. So if they start their life at about a 50-50 split, you know, and we want to keep them pretty balanced and as adults, it means we need to shoot at least as many does uh, as we do bucks each year. Uh, and actually, we need to shoot more does than bucks because bucks are kind of like humans. You know, who does it cost more for, for vehicle insurance or life insurance, you know, guys or girls? Right. <laughs> and there's guys, and it's because, you know, we're a lot more likely to do something stupid and kill ourselves. <laughs> right. It's the same thing with bucks. Right. Outside of the hunting season, you know, they're a lot more likely to get killed, you know, with, with a car or whatever. So, um, so anyway, right. in the vast majority of the white tails range, 
you need to shoot more uh, antlerless deer than you do bucks each year to keep those sex ratios about balanced. Hmm. Now, once you get up into northern New England and kind of the northern limit of the whitetail range where Mother Nature takes care of a lot of the winter problem, um, there, yeah, you don't need, you can, you can manage deer well by shooting more bucks than does. But hmm. for most of the U.S., you need to shoot more uh, does than you do bucks or else deer herds just get all out of whack. It's interesting. I wonder, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking about, you know, the, the reasons why that might be. I mean, I'm sure, you know, whenever you get into these, some of these Midwestern states, you know, whether it's in Ohio, uh, Iowa, you know, if you're going to Kansas to hunt or whatever, a lot of guys are taking their or girls that are taking those trips. It's like, they're trying to fill that tag, you know, a buck tag because they're trying to do that, that one hunt that they get to do a year out of state or whatever the case is. Then they're not going to, maybe put, you know, fling an arrow or put a, put a bullet, you know, in a, in a doe until it maybe gets to the end of the end of the trip. And then at that point you may have passed up how many opportunities to take a shot. And then that last day or two, you don't get the shot opportunity that you thought you might get. So do you think there's any credence to that? Just kind of like people when they take their trips, that's what they're focusing on. Oh, absolutely. And, and most people who are traveling to, I should say many people who are traveling to hunt, um, certainly are much more focused on shooting a buck than an analyst deer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's no question to that. And, of course, we both know, you know, uh, the more that you pressure bucks or does, you know, they become harder to kill. So those does that would be easy to shoot, you know, the first few days suddenly become pretty hard later in the season. So you, if you have a traveling hunter, either they don't get the opportunity or they don't want to take a, a doe home. So, uh, but, uh, man, as hunters, it'd be great to convince them. So even if you can't take it home, go ahead. And, you know, if, if it's in an area that needs additional antlers to your shop, shoot it, um, you know, and, there's lots of places that you could donate that, you know, to a local you know, soup yeah. kitchen or a local family or church or something and, you know, let them take advantage of it. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, you know, you kind of mentioned a couple couple trends there that kind of stuck out to you as you guys were putting this report together. But I'm curious if there's anything, you know, or a trend that you noticed that that, that was really concerning to you or something that we as hunters really kind of need to take notice of as you guys were kind of going over the data. I think the two trends that are that are, are very concerning to me, one is uh, our dwindling doe harvest. Um, that that's concerning because that there's a lot of choices that hunters are making not to shoot antlerless deer there, mm-hmm. and, that, and that does not fare well for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second trend that is very concerning to me is the continued spread of chronic wasting disease. Mm-hmm. Half of the states in the United States have it now, so over half of the states that have white-tailed deer have CWD or have confirmed it, and uh, so. Uh, that is an extremely alarming trend for the future of hunting. Right. And I know that I just saw, I got your, you guys as a newsletter today and you know, the email that you guys send out. And there was an article that was in there that was about the spread of CWD and why this should scare hunters, you know, should, should scare us to death to, to some degree. And it was the, it was the infographic of how many hunters are hunting, you know, in the, in the four hot corners of, of Wisconsin essentially. And then essentially how that then is kind of spreading out throughout the, the country. Um, you know, cause those hundreds, some of those hunters are from out of state and so forth. And that showed an infographic of how uh, 49 states in the U S hunters went to, if I'm getting this correct, hunted Wisconsin, harvested, and then returned to their state. Now there's no telling that they took back inappropriate animal parts or whatever the case might be. It's just stating the fact that these things do have the ability to travel across state lines. And we know that some of them are making it across these state lines, which is a huge problem and a challenge for, you know, not just state agencies, but for hunters to kind of make sure that they're following the rules and guidelines for moving, for moving body parts and so forth. So, I mean, I guess I'd love to get your perspective on that. Like, 
how do we how do we manage something like that that's so you know i don't know it's ambiguous isn't the right word but just like there's so many gaps there to try to fill to to i guess kind of squash the movement of of cwd like where where do you start this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovis is your stop for the best in western style Tacovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots apparel hats bags and more all Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, with that one, and uh, and I think that map is is the place that we can start with it. Mm-hmm. Show that you know the just you know hundred shot deer in, in just those four counties of Wisconsin, you know, and took them back to forty nine different states, or at least possibly did. We know from a CWD and that the the easiest way to move the disease is to move a live deer that has it, no question about it. Mm-hmm. So deer that are being transported, you know, among deer farms and facilities, now that's the the easiest way to move the disease. Now, that's obviously being done by captive deer farmers. Right. The second easiest way to move it is by moving the high-risk parts of a harvested deer. The high-risk parts are the brain, the eyes, the spleen, you know, the backbone, the nervous system. We know that if we take a deer that has CWD, move those high-risk parts and deposit them somewhere else, other deer that come in contact with them can, can get the disease. So that is not, you know, deer farmers far away. That is our, us as hunters' fault. And this map shows the potential for the amount of material that can be spread all over. So you can have, you know, states that didn't have CWD, that a hunter goes to Wisconsin to one of those areas, kills a CWD positive, brings it home, and literally can be starting the disease, you know, in his or her area. So all states, or I should say, most states have regulations that don't allow you to bring in the high-risk parts. Some don't allow you to bring them in from just CWD positive states. Uh, a growing number of states don't allow hunters to bring those parts in from any state, regardless if it has CWD or not, which is good. Those are all very good rules. The problem is almost no hunters know about them. Right. Or even the, many of the ones that do don't abide by them. Right. So what I think we need to do as hunters is, one, we need to, to make sure that hunters are aware of the potential, you know, the, the problem with moving uh, parts like that. And secondly, make sure that they know, you know, that, that you can't do it. So I think that this takes a big push by our state wildlife agencies. And I also think it takes a huge push by us as hunters to, you know, to make sure that our buddies know, hey, you know, if you're going you know, wherever, to Wisconsin, wherever, you, you can't bring that stuff back. You, know? right. you can bring back bone-down meat and a clean skull plate you know, in the hide. Uh, that's it. Right. So I think that, that that is where the next big push really has to come um, if we want to start helping uh, stop the spread of CWD. 
Right. Is there any, I guess a two part question here. I, I know I've listened to and have read in places and listened to other podcasts where they had some folks on talking about CWD and the challenges and so forth. And then I was actually kind of shocked to understand or to, to learn that there are people, you know, in the outdoor industry, um, some of which, you know, work in a science kind of environment, if you will, who still weren't buying in that CWD was, was a problem or that it, that it existed. Cause there's, I mean, I, I understand if there are hunters that would say, you know, I, I, I don't see it where I live. So I just think it's something someone has made up, right? Like even though I'm listening to biologists tell me that this thing is real, right? I can understand a person who maybe just is skeptical just in general about things. Okay. That's fine. But I really, it was shocking to me to, to, to hear about some of these folks, you know, and, and I'm not going to mention names or anything like that, but some of them were people and names that people would know, you know, that weren't bought in to the idea or the notion that this thing actually existed, or if it did exist, it wasn't as didn't warrant as much attention as it does. Have we started to see more alignment across the board in that regard with, you know, everyone who's involved with trying to correct this thing? Well, 95% of the, the wildlife and disease professionals mm-hmm. agree. This is a huge problem, right? Um, it's a very small number of uh, professionals who, who don't think it's a problem. Unfortunately, Many of those in that very small group have huge audiences, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so they use that to their benefit, you know, for self promotion, and and in some cases, making a lot of money off it. They can say, you know, this is not a big deal. Well, uh, it is a big deal, and uh, you know, if you play the odds uh, or or listen, you know, there's always two sides to a story, but you know, when 95 percent of the professionals are in agreement on this is one of the most severe things that we've ever had to deal with. Um, it is a big deal, you know, and shame on those guys for, for purposely playing the other side of it, you know, and, and tell them it's not a deal or not a big deal because that's just simply not true. Right. Are there any, are there any, you know, research advancements that are, you know, have happened, you know, in the, in the recent past that is kind of, that are, you know, I guess positive advancements and trying to figure out how to help, you know, manage this thing a little bit more effectively? Not really positive advancements. Um, we do continue to learn more about it, so mm. the, every little bit helps. Um, there's still no, there's still no cure. There's still no vaccine. Um, you know, there's not a, a 100% reliable live animal test, um, and, and there likely never will be. Partly because you know this is very similar to the human form of this disease, the Kirchfeld-Jakob disease, mm-hmm. and uh, they have literally, you know, over decades spent over a billion dollars to try to find, you know, a blood test that you could use on humans to tell if you had it or not, mm-hmm. and um, they haven't been able to. Wow. So if they can't do it on humans with over a billion of research, you know, in decades of work, you know, there's no way that they're going to be able to endear when there's just simply not the money there for that research and certainly not the, the importance uh, of a human test. Right. So what's unlikely we're ever going to have a 100% reliable live animal test. Um, one thing that is helping us um, I think in the fight with CWD is there's more research now showing particularly out west where the disease has been around for quite a while that uh, that it is causing significant population declines in, uh, in mule deer herds and in white-tailed deer herds. And that's one of the things that a lot of people say is, well, you know, our deer aren't tipping over. You know, I don't right. see these deer. I think it's okay. Well, the, the problem is, you know, you almost will never see a, a sick deer that has CWD. And the reason being is you know, they, they get killed by something else first. Right. And, uh, and there's some, some very recent research that shows that deer that has CWD 
die at three times the rate of normal deer. Hmm. And uh, they either are eaten by a predator or hit by a car or, you know, something. So uh, that does not fare well for us in the future. All right. Sorry, folks. We had a couple of technical difficulties there. But for uh, for now, though, let's go ahead and shift gears maybe to a little bit of a, of a happier topic, you know, or, or uplifting, if you will. Uh, we've covered a couple of the trends, you know, you think are um, you know, something that you, you see as, as troublesome to a degree. Um, let's hear about a couple of the things that you noticed that, you know, it really encourages you from the day that you guys come, we're looking at. Well, I think one that is uh, the hunter uh, support um, by non-hunters in the U.S., um, are at all-time highs. So uh, a very small number of us hunt. Uh, it's down to less than 5% of the American public actually hunts. But uh, over three-quarters of the, the non-hunting, or of the U.S. adult Americans, let's say it. So between 75 and 79% of, uh, of adult Americans support hunting, support legal, ethical, regulated hunting. So uh, that is super good for us, you know, uh, given that we are a minority that do hunt. That uh, the, this thing that we love to do and this free service that we provide to society by managing wildlife populations uh, is uh, supported by that high of a percentage of Americans. So we're very lucky there. And that's a really good trend uh, in our favor. Right. It's, it's always interesting because, you know, I made mention I had written an article, um, you know, it actually was in Quality Whitetails. And I was super excited. It was my first, you know, published article in a hard print copy magazine. So I was excited to, to do that. And I had mentioned in that article, you know, that we... I kind of said that we're kind of afforded the privilege of hunting by the grace of 94% of the people in the U S <laughs> to a degree. Right. And I think a lot of times that's lost on hunters that, you know, it is those, it is the majority that continue to allow us to do this, which means it's that much more important that we represent it in the right way. Cause the, every time you have an encounter with somebody um, and you talk about hunting, they see you as the hunter. That's their image of a hunter. And so you want to make sure you're painting the, the, the correct, uh, you know, correct picture for them. But I'm curious, you know, is there, I imagine there's some type of divide, you know, that, that high percentage of people are, are um, supportive of, of, of hunting. You know, when you start to maybe classify it differently with different labels or definitions, how does that change? So like, for example, like whether you're referring to it as trophy hunting or sport hunting or whatever the case might be, is there any kind of, I guess, data out there that says, you know, which way the messaging is best, you know, received Yes, there is. And they've done a bunch of research on that as well. And uh, the highest support for honey uh, is when uh, it's used uh, to procure meat for the family. And as uh, soon as you start to put labels on it, such as trophy honey, support goes way down. So, so, for example, you know, there's over three quarters of Americans will support you going to hunt deer wherever you may live or go, you know, to provide meat for your family. That same group, uh, only about a third of them would support you going to hunt deer over bait. Hmm. So as soon as you start talking about baiting for deer, support drops way down. You start talking about hunting inside a fence, hunting go, or support goes way down. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we do need to be very careful, um, you know, when we start looking at labels on hunters and, and that. But uh, fortunately, you know, what QDMA supports the most, and uh, I think, you know, the, the type of hunting that you do, as you know, for free ranging deer, we're out. You know, we're being good stewards of the natural resources. You know, we're consuming the venison, we're sharing the venison. That's the type of hunting that that uh, has the highest support by non hunting uh, Americans. So right. we're very lucky. There. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all just have to kind of keep in mind when we're 
when we're posting things on social media, because that's, of course, where things can go awry, right? It's like you've, we've all seen it. Someone posts something, they use the wrong verbiage, right? And then all of a sudden the firestorm kind of kind of lights up. So I think we all just need to make sure that when we're classifying what we do, that we're classifying it correctly. Um, you know, and I hate to say that we have to censor ourselves, right? But it's like if you want to enjoy the things that we enjoy, you have to take a little bit of the responsibility for it uh, to make sure to ensure that we're able to enjoy it the way we like to, right? Um, which is, you know. Unfortunate, but it's the it's you know the, the the way the world works. I guess you could say. The one question I do have, though, I want to just jump back. You know, if I could, back to when we were talking about the the doe harvest numbers and so forth. You know, I, I'm assuming that with the doe harvest numbers being down, the fawn recruitment numbers are probably looking uh, pretty solid. Is is that the case, or do those two things not kind of go in, or go hand in hand with each other? Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. Um, not exactly. And actually, spawn recruitment rates have plummeted over the last uh, decade and a half. Hmm. Um, and we monitor that pretty closely at QDMA. So just take a look at you know, fawn recruitment rate is the number of fawns that are alive per doe um, day one of the hunting season in the fall. So uh, it's not the measure of fawns that you know are born in the spring. Uh, so it's the number that actually make it through you know almost that first six months of life or first few months anyway and enter the fall population. So historically, you know, uh, and and. People think of fawn recruitment rates as being a lot higher than they really are because they think, ah, does have twins, and so it's got to be. The reality of it is, it's not even near uh, one fawn per doe anymore. Oh wow! Um, about you know a little over a decade ago, or 15 years ago, um, it was close to one. It was like 0.89 fawns per doe was uh, was the average. Today, that's down uh, to like you know 0.59. It has dropped way off, and uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But the thing is, you know, that the average doe today does not recruit a whole fawn in the fall. Wow. You know, some of those fawns die to, you know, disease, a lot die to predation, um, you know, some to malnutrition, some get hit by cars, whatever. But uh, across the board, um, almost every state's fawn recruitment rate has dropped a lot over the last decade and a half. Right. And you, you mentioned a couple of reasons that are possible, but is there any, like, you know, number one culprit as to why we're seeing the the fawn recruitment numbers drop the way we are is there is there one thing that we can kind of point to that's changed so, so drastically over the past 10 years um well i think that it's, there are certain uh reasons that are more regional than others for mm-hmm. instance um you know the arrival of the coyote in the southeastern united states over the past decade you know here in pennsylvania we've had coyotes forever mm-hmm. so uh you know our deer herds have dealt with them for a long time um but there's a lot of states in the southeastern U.S. that they really have just gotten coyotes in the past decade. And uh, they have absolutely wreaked havoc on some of those deer populations. Um, you know, all of a sudden these, these, these does, you know, have a new thing to contend with the fawns and uh, they just aren't very good at protecting them. Right. So, uh, you know, my personal opinion is do coyotes have an impact on deer in Pennsylvania? Absolutely. They absolutely do. Um, do they have the impact that they do, and um, you know, on deer like in South Carolina or something? I'm not even close. Wow. You know, our fawn recruitment rate is more stable than, than many different states. Um, 
you know, my personal opinion is that black bears eat a lot more fawns, at least in north central Pennsylvania, than coyotes do. But uh, our fawn recruitment rate has not dropped nearly as much. But there are places in the southeastern U.S., you know, where fawn recruitment rates have dropped, you know, to, to 20 or 30 percent. Wow. So it means, you know, seven or eight out of every 10 fawns born get eaten before they even make it into their first hunting season. That's a, that's a tough so, life. Uh, that's a, that's insane. Yeah, there's places there, you know, that they have dramatically re- had to reduce antlerless harvest opportunities because those populations just can't handle it anymore. Hmm. Um, that's not the situation where we are here in the, in the Keystone State, but uh, there's no doubt that the predators are having a, a bigger impact today on fawns uh, than they probably have in a long time. Right. Now, what about, you know, I guess loss of habitat? How much does that play into it, kind of corralling deer herds into possibly smaller areas, you know, with the same amount of amount of predators. Is there is there anything to that that's kind of playing into that fawn recruitment number as well? There is, and, and that is probably the biggest thing uh, with from the fawn recruitment, and those fawns have to have good habitat to hide in. And uh, if you take a look just in CRP, you know, our Conservation Reserve Program, which mm-hmm. is by far the most successful uh, federal program for wildlife habitat that's ever been implemented, um, you know, here a couple of years ago, we had a big drop in uh, in CRP acreage across the U.S. You know because of high corn prices and, and anyway, we uh, we lost a full 25 percent of all of our CRP acres. You know within a couple of years, which is just insane. So um, so yes, habitat has had a huge impact on you know just places where where farms can hide. So right, yeah. The one thing yeah, I habitat's th- a big big factor. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I was reading in the, in the Whitetail Report, it was, you know, it was talking about food plots a little bit. Um, and it, it, I would love to get your perspective on this. And I think I know what your perspective is just from reading the, the, the Whitetail Report. But people have mixed opinions about the use, the use of food plots. I know that they're extremely popular, right? Um, you know, some people, you know, would maybe not prefer to have food plots because maybe they think it's, you know, drawing deer to a central location. Maybe it's, you know, there's not enough food around the, 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 the destination food source. So it's damaging the habitat that's kind of surrounding it and, 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 and so forth. You know, I'm kind of of the mind that, you know, whatever it's going to take to get someone who owns a piece of land or leases a piece of land to be involved with their land um, is okay in my book, because in my opinion, it's, it's a truer through line to conservation. If that person has their hands in the dirt managing and can see the fruits of their labor than it is the person that's just kind of showing up and hunting it as it is. I don't know what your feelings are on that. I want to get your perspective. I'm a huge fan of food plots uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one is that they certainly can provide food for, for wildlife, and not just deer. There's a whole variety of wildlife that benefit from a food plot. Um, and some species can provide cover for, for wildlife. So I am a big fan. Um, the way we look at it at QDMA is, hey, don't try to carry a deer herd with food plots. You know, do a good job managing the habitat, the forested areas of that habitat, the early successional habitat, make sure you have enough food and cover there to carry the deer herd. Then just use food plots as kind of like the, the icing on this cake. Mm-hmm. You know, use that as all supplemental stuff, you know, above and beyond. So you can provide tremendous forage with food plots. You can provide places for viewing deer, uh, places, you know, to make sure that you can harvest enough antlerless deer. Um, there's lots and lots of benefits of food plots. They far outweigh any of the potential negatives. And there's actually some research showing you know, that they benefit uh, forest songbirds as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just uh, deer or even just species that we can shoot that benefit from these food plots. Right. Um, secondly, and you kind of touched on this, um, 
there's a lot of people today that do a lot of really good habitat work for wildlife um, that started by getting their hands dirty in a food plot. Mm-hmm. You know, doing something food plotting is often uh, the bridge that then gets them into doing more work in the forested areas or, you know, in the old fields or these early successional habitats. Food plots lead to so much more habitat work and so much more stewardship that uh, I am a huge fan of food plots. Right. I like to say food plots is the gateway drug for habitat management. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's a great way to say it. That was way better than the way I said it. <laughs> Oh man! So hey, I want to shift gears here again one more time, and I want to I want to talk a little bit about you know uh, hunter recruitment and hunter numbers in general. Um, I know that hunter recruitment, of course, as we touched on at the, at the beginning of the show, is a big initiative for um, QDMA, um, and I think it should be a big initiative or something that's important for for all hunters just just in general. So I think one of the glaring pieces of data, and we had Ryan on, and we talked a little bit about this as well. Um, but one of the glaring pieces of data in, in, in this report is how hunter numbers are, are trending downwards um, in a relatively significant way, you know, both in terms of numbers, you know, just sheer you know, hunter numbers and then the dollars contributed to the overall you know, economy. So I guess my question to you first is, you know, what are some of the things that we can be doing as hunters, you know, or, uh, and people who love the outdoors and want to make sure that we you know, continue to have this hunting heritage that we you know enjoy so much for a long time and be able to pass it on to other generations. What are some of the things that we should be doing to turn these uh, numbers around? Well, I think one thing is for sure is, uh, you know, mentoring somebody or taking somebody afield is, is a great way to, to get them involved. Um, and then anything that, that, uh, that they spend on field equipment, you know, the, the excise tax can then help fund wildlife management. That's all so important to our state wildlife agencies. Um, so I think that if, if you know somebody who likes the outdoors, you know, if they're not a hunter, uh, encourage them to buy a hunting license. You know, I do this all the time. Even if they don't want to hunt, that's fine. But just the fact that, it's, you know, they mm-hmm. are paying for conservation. You know, mm-hmm. they're paying to preserve those lands. They're paying to help manage all the wildlife on them, you know, not just deer or bear and turkeys, but, you know, songbirds, butterflies, and, and everything else. So uh, just making them aware the the average non-hunter has no idea that hunters pay for almost all of conservation. Right. So and sometimes just making them aware of it. Hey, you know, do you enjoy wild places? You know, do you enjoy wildlife? Yeah, well then, you know, hey, it's in peril. You know, we are losing hunters. We're losing the uh, the funding source for it. So, you know, if you enjoy that stuff, help out. And uh, buying a hunting license is a great way to do it, you know, even if they have no intention of using it. So I think they also, you know, can talk to them about, you know, the funding model for most state wildlife agencies, you know, the vast majority that comes from license fees. And that um, is really broke today. It just, it just simply, you know, 30 years ago, it was a great model. It's not a good model today. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to have some serious changes for most state wildlife agencies, how they're funded, or if we want to, to continue to maintain the quality of, of wildlife management that we have today. So whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter, if you like wildlife, you know, that, that's a discussion that you should be aware of. So I think that we certainly can, can make others just aware of how important uh, that is. Right. So I'm curious your, your opinion on this is something that popped up several, several months ago. Um, and just want to see if you have any thoughts around it. And I know that I read an article where Pennsylvania was kicking around the idea, and this is Pennsylvania specific here, uh, was kicking around the idea of an additional buck tag. Right. Um, so I'm just curious what your thoughts on, you know, what that would, how that would impact the, the hunting, the, the deer numbers, um, you know, the impact financially, of course, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I'm, there are certain uh, cases that I, that I think an additional buck can really help the deer management program. Um, I personally don't think that that would be a good thing for Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have established that we have a tremendous hunting culture, um, and so much of a good management program is based on consistency and just tradition and, uh, you know, and getting hunters to buy into what's going on. And in Pennsylvania, we have a very good track record. We have hunters that know that we have a limit of one buck. Um, hey, let's put more venison in our freezer than that. I certainly put way more venison in my freezer than, than one deer a year. Right. Um, my family would go crazy if we didn't. So uh, we then, you know, turn our focus to, to shooting animal this deer, which is very much needed. Um, I do think that there are cases where if Pennsylvania hunters had a chance to shoot a second buck, they would shoot a lot less antlerless deer. Um, so, uh, so I don't think that that would be a good thing. Um, right. It's not a, necessarily it would be a bad thing. I think in all states, but in our state, um, I'm not a fan of a, of a second buck tag. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree with you. It's it, when I was reading the article, I know it was they were looking at ways I think to make up a deficit of about a million dollars. I think that they were saying that they were going to have. Um, or we're going to have in the, in the very near future. And I was just curious as to why, you know, they would move directly to potentially looking at a second buck tag option when I don't think there's been a, an increase in, on the license cost um, in like 20 some odd years, like 25 years or something like that, since like the 90s. I think it was the last time there was a license increase or a cost increase. Um, I, me personally, this is my personal opinion. It's like I, there has been nothing in 25 years that hasn't seen inflation. <laughs> and I would assume that, you know, asking someone to pay an extra dollar for a hunting license, you know, multiply that by what roughly the 900,000 ish hunters that we have in Pennsylvania, and you've nearly made up your million. So I was just curious why they moved directly to the additional buck tag rather than just looking at the cost increase of the license in general. Do you have any like thoughts or any insight as to why, like maybe there were, that was a, was there a biological reason why they were potentially looking at the, at the buck tag or was it just more of like, they thought it was more of an enticing sell from a marketing perspective? Well, I think, well, actually I know it was because of uh, the, our legislature has, has held the game commission hostage with regard to a license fee increase. Uh, mm-hmm. The game commission does not have the ability to raise prices. Um, mm-hmm. The legislature has to give them uh, the, that increase. And the Game Commission has tried for a number of years now to get that increase, uh, you know, and a very modest increase. Uh, QDMA has supported that numerous times for the reasons that you pointed out. You know, we are going to have a huge deficit, and uh, and we have to have this. Um, our license prices are, are very low compared to, to many other states, and, and I, I certainly understand not wanting to pay more for it. But uh, um, the reality of it is if we want to continue, you know, the, the high quality of hunting and wildlife management that we have here in Pennsylvania, you know, we need to fund our agency. Right. And uh, the license fee increase would be the absolute perfect way to do that. Um, the Game Commission has tried repeatedly, um, has not gotten it. So I think that's why they then at least, you know, talked about the potential of adding a second buck tag. They would much rather, though, just have a license fee increase that, you know, was, was very fair to hunters. And, uh, and more adequately funded them. And the thing is, I think the majority of hunters in Pennsylvania would support that as well. Um, you know, we certainly realize that it costs more, you know, if you go to a, a ball game today or a movie or, or something. So, right. uh, you, know, we, we should, we, you know, we have to pay more for, for hunting as well. 
Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with you. And I think one of the things too, it's like you know, if, if, in everything in, in in business is a negotiation, right? So we give you just call it a dollar, right, for the license or whatever it is, dollar, dollar fifty, two dollars, whatever it happens to be. You know, as a hunter, it's like you're looking for what do I get in return? You know, and in return, I'm happy to give that for just knowing that my state agencies are going to be funded to be able to do the job that they wish to do, right? So that's enough for me. But if we need more than that, it's like I'm willing to buy. Sunday hunting, <laughs> you know what I mean? For, for two extra dollars on my license. So how do you feel about Sunday hunting? Do you, do you feel it's something that Pennsylvania should look to do? Cause I mean, I know that we're one of like the only, if not the only state that doesn't hunt on Sundays. Yeah, we are one of the last ones. There's just a few left. Uh, I'm uh, also a fan of Sunday hunting. You know, I have managed deer in other states that allowed it. You know, I've hunted in other states that allowed it. So, uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that we can't hunt, you know, deer and turkeys and and other things here Um, particularly given the fact that we're losing hunters Mm -hmm. you know so many kids today you know have to play sports on saturday you know they so either have no opportunity or almost no opportunity to hunt where sunday would provide so much more um we have supported that bill as well numerous times you know to to allow sunday hunting in pennsylvania and and i always joke i have written i can't tell you how many letters uh (laughs) sunday hunts and I always joke and say, you know, for everyone I write, my wife writes one that that, uh, that opposes Sunday. Writes <laughs> <Right. laughs> the early day you're home. <laughs> she doesn't do that. But, uh, you know, if, if people don't want to hunt on Sunday, they don't have to. Right. Man, there's, a, there's so many, particularly so many kids that uh, would tremendously benefit from that, that opportunity. So uh, I, I think it's absolutely crazy that we can't hunt on Sundays in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think the good news is, is that it's at least – you know, I'm starting to see a little bit more noise about it, starting to see, you know, some, you know, outlets, you know, media outlets picking it up and talking about it a little bit more. So my hope is that as long as the conversation is continuing to happen, that, you know, hopefully at some point, at least in my day, I'll, I'll be able to see um, some Sunday hunting, which would be which would be great. Um, you know, another kind of thing that's, you know, controversial to a degree in Pennsylvania, like some people love it, some people hate it, is the antler restriction, right? Like me personally, I can speak from personal experience. I I, I love it personally. Um, I think that the deer that I had, had, you know, had the opportunity to hunt when I was growing up as a kid, uh, in comparison to the deer that I am seeing now in the similar areas, cause my family's all still from that same, same area of, of Pennsylvania. It's night and day, the, the, the type of deer that we're seeing. And you're now starting to see some legit, um, you know, trophy styled, you know, bucks coming out of Pennsylvania. Like every year now you're seeing someone, you know, there was someone behind my mom and my stepdad's house that killed 167 inch deer this past year in archery season. This, uh, older woman did it um so you know i guess talk to me a little bit about the antler restrictions and how how that's kind of working for for pennsylvania it's working extremely well for pennsylvania it's doing exactly what they wanted to do it's protecting the majority of yearling bucks and letting the majority of deer that are two and a half or older uh, be eligible for harvest so uh, it is working extremely well um and the, the majority of pennsylvania hunters support it you know, uh, support for that is maintained or been maintained you know well over 60 percent of our hunters so uh, that's a very good thing. It continues then to, to focus more effort or more harvest effort on antlerless deer. So we're shooting about the right number of antlerless deer each year. You know, we're protecting the majority of our yearling bucks. We have great age structure. Um, yeah, antler restrictions ha- has been extremely good for, for Pennsylvania deer herds and, and, and certainly for our hunting opportunities. Nice. So not to, I know I'm kind of skipping around here a little bit, but as we're talking, it's like things just kind of keep popping into keep popping into my head. 
I want to I want to just kind of take like two steps back and and kind of re kind of focus on the the aspect of dwindling hunting numbers and how that impacts the overall cost because as I was flipping through the the report and hate to go back to like the the uh, the depressing topic of CWD but it's just such a you know an important topic that I want to make sure that I kind of you know cover it and ask the, all the questions that I have about it. I know that I was reading in there that the average cost of CWD test kit, you know, hasn't changed much from 20 or 2008 to, to 2016 and the cost, but the cost range has kind of changed or has kind of has, I guess, a, a rather large chasm, if you will, from like roughly $10 to like $100. Why, I guess, is the range so large between, you know, what it might cost in one place versus um, another? And then are there different types of CWD tests that are being used, you know, throughout different state agencies? Uh, great question. Um, there are a couple of different types of CWD tests. Um, most are using uh, the same type, and most of the tests cost about the same. And uh, when we asked that question uh, to the, our state wildlife agency survey to provide the information for our whitetail report, our intent was to just find out what does the actual test itself cost. Mm-hmm. What we found out when states answered is some states answered just what the test cost, you know, 10 or $20. Others included what the test cost plus their labor cost mm-hmm. for acquiring those CWD samples. So that's why you see some states say, you know, 90 or or $100. Well, others say 10 or 20. So uh, we, it turned out it was our fault. We didn't ask uh, the question clearly enough uh, mm-hmm. or just didn't ask a good question, I guess. Right. But that's why you see such a huge range. But what we found in some of the follow-up calls is the actual test itself, you know, that 10 to $20 range is pretty safe. Mm-hmm. But what it costs an agency for each of those samples to have them tested with manpower and all that is a whole lot closer to $100 per sample which is just incredibly uh, expensive right. and in uh, money that, you know, if CWD wasn't there, we could be using for habitat enhancement and hunter access issues and, and that kind of thing, which, boy, sure would be not a lot nicer to use the money on that than uh, have yeah. to use it on these. Yeah. What, so in general, like, in, in, I'm not sure if you would know this or not, but, you know, just on average, take a, a state agency, whether it's, you know, Pennsylvania or Ohio or Michigan or wherever, on average, what are what are most states spending annually on CWD testing? Do you have a, a kind of a general figure for that? Boy, I don't. Um, I don't know what exactly that would be. Um, I do know more than we would take, like. <laughs> what's that? I said more than we would like, right? Yeah, that's for sure. That yeah. is for sure. There's no question about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot. It's a lot of money. And no, we're not discrediting the agencies at all. You know, I'm glad they're spending it on yeah. it so that we can learn as much as we can about, you know, distribution of the disease and what it is. So uh, it's money that they're being forced to spend on it. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot for sure. Right. And so for anyone out there that's kind of thinking about taking folks, you know, out hunting and recruitment, so I'm going to circle back to like the whole idea of hunter recruitment, right? So the dwindling hunting numbers affecting the overall dollars that are being contributed to the economy, not just the hunting economy, right? But the economy at large. And of course, a portion of that um, goes into, um, uh, you know, toward, toward our state agencies and stuff like that. Um, you know, I guess let's talk a little bit about the impact that those hunting numbers, those dwindling hunting numbers have on the opportunity to fund research, important research for CWD or important testing that states could could do or, or can do. You know, I, I, I'm assuming that there's a direct through line from like that number drop to 
the amount of money that we can then put toward trying to figure out how to manage CWD the most effective way. Yeah, basically for every hunter that we have, they buy a hunting license and they buy hunting items. And those, the monies from those two are what fund most of our agencies. So every time we lose a hunter, it's taking money right out of the budget that our agencies have to, you know, manage wildlife, to for disease surveillance, habitat work, all of that. So there is an absolute direct line in, in the vast majority of states. There's a couple states that are not quite as cut and dry. But in almost every state, for every hunter you lose, um, your, your wildlife management program takes a hit. So, uh, and that's not a good thing. Right. So one more question, and then I want to I want to talk to you about a, a hunting story that you that you might have to be able to share with us. But and I don't, I'm not sure if this is, you know, um, in, in your wheelhouse or not, but I think that you're, you know, of course, a, an excellent resource to kind of to bounce this off of is, as I understand it, as you had mentioned, whenever you buy a hunting license, right, or you're buying um, hunting gear, right, and you're paying your what is a Pitt, Pittman Robert, Robertson Act, right, tax or your excise yep. tax. That money is all being funneled directly into the different various, you know, some type of kitty, if you will, that's then being dispersed to the various state agencies to support, you know, habitat, wildlife, conservation, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think my personal opinion is, and I would love to just kind of get your thoughts on this, is that we're at a place now where, you know, I, as much as I love the support that a lot of non-consumptive, you know, um, outdoor users or, or non-consumptive, um, you know, outdoor, uh, you know, proponents, um, contribute to the economy in terms of, you know, buying hiking boots or shoes or whatever the case might be, you know, what they end up paying is they pay a similar tax, right. On, on what they're using or what they're purchasing, but it's in the form of a tariff, right. If I'm not mistaken. And then that money then is funneled into the treasury. And at that point, that money is then broken up by however the treasury determines that its budget's going to be spent or how it's going to be, the pie is going to be divided up among any number of things from, you know, giving money toward road construction to public education to whatever the case might be. And so that's small. The part of the pie that we get from non-consumptive users is much smaller than the pie we get from from hunters. I think, you know, I'm just curious if from your opinion, is it time to start asking some of these folks to do more from a financial perspective, um, considering that we're losing the, the amount of hunters that we have, um, you know, that that number continues to dwindle? Oh, I think it absolutely is. And get the you know a non-consumptive user. Um, oh, perfect example. Take a non-consumptive user that goes on you know our state game lands in Pennsylvania. You know they use the roads, they use the trails, they're looking for the wildlife. Um, you know that's all. All of that costs money. You know to, to purchase those, to manage those. You know it's just because they choose to not shoot something when they're there. In my opinion, all of the other stuff that the benefits they get should not be free. You mm-hmm. know they should be in their way as well. Um, that has never uh, come to fruition, but uh, I think that it absolutely should uh, in the United States, you know, particularly given that as we continue to lose hunter numbers. But, you know, even if we weren't losing hunters, even if we had hunters, I'm a firm believer, you know, all the stakeholders should have a seat at the table, and they should pay their way. And uh, so mm-hmm. just because your passion is, you know, bird watching, you know, you're not killing songbirds, you know, those songbirds wouldn't be there if they weren't managed properly. Right. And that management takes money. So yeah. I think anybody who is enjoying those natural resources, you know, all, all the precious ones that we have, ought to be contributing to the management of them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hey, look, there's plenty of days where I buy a license and I end up just taking my bow or gun for a walk because <laughs> there's plenty of days I walk out of the woods without filling a tag, right? So that's for sure. <laughs> a lot more days that you take them for a walk than uh, than you actually use them. <laughs> that's right. Hey, uh, Kip, I, w- I want to be sensitive to your time here. I know we've kept you here. I've, I've kept you here just about an hour, and I always like to end with a personal hunting story uh, that's meaningful to our guests. So if you wouldn't mind, give us a story. Um, a hunting story that you've had it could be a near miss it could be the one that got away it could be you know a, a great harvest or whatever the case might be uh, but give us, give us every detail about where you were hunting um, you know what time of type of time of year it was and uh, all the details from the time you left your truck back to the tailgate all right um, actually I, well I talked earlier about uh, my daughter's first deer uh, this past year in archery season and her first buck in rifle season so uh, those were two of the most memorable hunts ever but uh since I kind of alluded to those earlier, I'll, I'll pick a different one right now. All right. And this uh, was from this past hunting season. Um, it was the uh, opening day of our rifle season. So uh, that morning was when my daughter shot her buck. Um, I have uh, one brother and then three nephews. So my daughter, my son is nine. My daughter is 11. Um, and then I have three nephews, one that's 14, and then there's a boy, and then twin boys who just turned 12. So the twins are essentially the same age as my daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, my brother had his three uh, kids with him, and uh, I had my daughter with me. Well, uh, after my daughter shot hers, I got with my brother, and I said, hey, let me take one of your boys now. I can mentor them, and uh, so we'll, we'll get his rifle and, and go. So one of the, the twins came with me, and uh, that later that afternoon, we went to a, a different spot. We're in the stand. Actually, we're in a power blind. Uh, looking over uh, this food plot that, uh, that my daughter and my son and I had planted. And uh, in this, we had uh, my daughter went along to watch, my son went along to watch, and then I am mentoring uh, my 11-year-old nephew. And uh, it turns out uh, he sat there, and actually a spiked buck came into the field. And, and uh, Justin has shot one deer up to this point, or one buck up to this point, and, uh, and two deer. So he shot a buck uh, two years ago. And then uh, one antlerless deer uh, this past early antlerless season. So we had two deer to his credit. So uh, still, you know, a brand new hunter that had some success for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, the spike buck jumps into the field. And in our camp, um, all of the adults, um, our rules are, you know, let's, let's shoot a buck that's three or older um, or has a 16-inch inside spread, your choice. Right. And, uh, you know, some guys at camp won't shoot a three-year-old. Some will shoot any three-year-old. But mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, that works good for us, so that's what we go with. But the kids are encouraged they're allowed and encouraged to shoot anything they want. And uh, so the spike bug jumps into the field, and I said, oh, you see it, Justin? Yeah. And uh, as he starts to get nervous, immediately uh, this 10-point comes into the field <laughs> right behind the spike. And, uh, you know, there, there's no doubt what deer now he wants to shoot. And right. uh, the 10 actually a young deer as well. And uh, um, I estimated it two and a half years old. So, But uh, certainly, you know, looks way bigger than this spike. Right. And uh, so I was just I said, you know, like, what do you want? And he just looked at me, you know, he oh, Uncle Kip, I want the big one. <laughs> and I said, good for you, buddy. That's the one I want you to shoot, too. And uh, he was so nervous. You know, he said there, and he's trying to, and uh, I, I said, hey, buddy, you know, isn't this exciting? He said, I'm really nervous, Uncle Kip. I said, I, that is great, buddy. That is why honey is so excited. I'm excited, too. My heart is beating fast. Yours is beating fast. And so I said, this is what makes it so much fun. So, you know calm down, you know, you're a good shot. So getting back on the gun, I said, all right, you know, breathe slowly with me, you know, breathe in, 
breathe out real slowly and just squeeze that trigger and make sure you see that bullet, you know, hit through the scope. You keep your eye on that scope the whole time. And uh, what made it really cool is he was sitting on a stool in a blind, and he he said, Uncle Kip, I'm afraid the gun is going to knock me off the stool. <laughs> and he was shooting uh, my daughter's two forty three. I said, it's not going to, buddy. You know, you're, you're good. So uh, my daughter leaned up, and uh, they're very close, uh, actually starts rubbing his back and said, Justin, I will stand behind you so that the gun can't kick you off. So he's like, oh, okay, thank you, Katie, thank you. And that made all the difference in the world to him. So my son is standing there. He's watching. You know, I'm talking Justin through this shot. My heart is racing like crazy. Like I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm about to have a heart attack. You know, my daughter is rubbing my nephew's back. And I just looked around and I thought, you know what, right now, everything is right in the world. Yep. I have no idea what's going to happen when he pulls the trigger. I was very confident that he would make a good shot, but you know, you never know, particularly no. as excited as he was. Yeah. You know, he could have missed it by a mile. But looking at here, I have my nephew with me. We see a deer. My son is here. My daughter is here. All three of them are working so hard together to help Justin get this deer. So you know what? Right now, everything is right in the world. And uh, you know, so finally... He got calmed down enough. The deer presented a great shot. He shot, and it was it was apparent he made a tremendous hit. And the deer ran about thirty yards and died right there. So the four of us got to get to it together and celebrate together before we get back to camp. And then uh, obviously uh, my brother gets there and sees it. But for those those few minutes where it was just us, I thought, you know what? I feel so sorry for people who don't hunt oh, yeah. and people who will never get to experience the magic of the woods. Um, at the, that is, it was just absolutely outstanding and such a touching moment for me to watch my kids try to you know, do everything possible to help their uh, cousin and uh, to watch how appreciative he was that they were helping. Uh, I'll never forget it for sure. Man, that's, that's awesome. Like it does, you're right, man. At that moment, everything was right in the world and it doesn't get much better than that. It's a, uh... You're right. And you're also right about the point of, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to see some of the things that we see. It's, I try to explain to people that view you get from a tree stand in early October or, you know, mid to late October, early November and watch the woods wake up. And I was like, the people that don't do this is like, they just, they don't know what they're missing, you know? Um, but Hey man, I do appreciate you coming on. That's a great way to end the, uh, end the show. Um, I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, for all the work that, you know, you and QDMA do, um, very appreciative of the, the efforts you guys put, put in to make sure that we continue to have this, you know, this, this hunting heritage that we have and, and, and push it forward and make sure that it's here to pass on to future generations. You guys are the good guys and, uh, can't thank you enough for what you do. So appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed uh, talking with you and, uh, and thank you for being a QDMA member and, uh, and a hunter and, uh, and doing all the educational, uh, stuff that you do to, to share information with others. So, uh, um, so, so good luck this turkey season and, and uh, and good luck this fall. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Hey, but before I let you go, man, let's, uh, it, are there, give us a couple places where people can find more information about maybe you or QDMA if they want to get involved. All right. They said they can go to our website, which is uh, QDMA.com. And, uh, and on that, we have all kinds of information there to, to help them, you know, from a hunting end, from a deer biology end, or a habitat enhancement end. Uh, the whitetail report that we talked about tonight, um, we have written 10 of those now, 10 annual reports. Those are all free downloads. So uh, we have a ton of information uh, available there for, for hunters. Uh, and we want them to grab it and use it. You know, it, it's there to help. And uh, you know, we say QDMA, it's where deer hunters belong, whether you're a new hunter, uh, a veteran hunter, 
bow hunter, rifle hunter, whatever, uh, at QDMA, we fight hard for your hunters hunting rights, and uh, we'd, we'd love to have you uh, be a member if you choose. And make sure you give them a follow as well on Facebook and Instagram. Always good, always good content. Always good people. Um, can't say enough good things about what you guys do. So appreciate you coming on, Kip. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, Clint. Have a great time. All right, folks. That is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to thank Kip for joining us. Be sure to visit QDMA at QDMA.com and become a member today. It's not a ton of money, and the quality Whitetail magazine that you get with your membership is well worth the $35 membership fee. Of course, QDMA puts out a ton of great content, and the money, of course, goes to a great cause. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening, and if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, We'd be super appreciative if you do those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. I ain't welcome anymore. Long time coming if it all. It takes a special knowing to colorful. Damaged heads, broken letters. Nationalized. Numbers, but I gotta get away from here. Gotta get away from here. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.